Father, I want to pray a blessing upon my brothers and sisters who come to you today and saying, God, I need you. I need you to move in my life. I need you to work in my life. God, you recognize that this is not an easy time for me. This is a difficult season in my life. And I need to experience your mercies. Lord, would you wrap your arms around me right now and let me sense your presence. God, would you sustain me in the days ahead as well as in these moments by your righteous right hand. God, I I want to claim that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Lord, I believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and that you will meet my needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And it is upon these promises, Lord, I pray, though I may not have the feelings, may I, I may not understand it, I cannot see it, but I want to believe in faith that you are working because of your covenant love for me, because of your compassion, because of your loving kindness, because of your loyalty, because of your promise. So God, touch me, grow me, sustain me, transform me so that I might give you praise and glory, so that I might be molded into the image of Jesus. And I trust you, though I do not understand, though I do not uh, see, though I cannot manipulate these circumstances, Lord, I trust you because you are the only place I can go. You are the only one who can transcend my situation, who can give me the strength to walk another day, to believe, to hope, and to live. So I call upon that manifold mercy today and ask you, God, to be upon me this day and in the days ahead and carry me if you must. And I believe it according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. We pray this blessing upon our brothers and sisters for your sake and for your glory, O oh Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be looking at Second Samuel chapter 9 today. And uh, we're just going to do about four more chapters, three or four more chapters. We're going to do actually just two more sermons. We're going to look at David and Bathsheba and then... How that debacle ended. Okay, and what you all right. So we're going to look at that in the next few weeks. So I encourage you to read uh, chapters 10, 11, 12, and thirteen. Uh, matter of fact, read them this week. Read, read them every week for the next two weeks. Okay, and, uh, and we're going to wrap up our series. Believe it or not, we started in September, took a break uh, in December, and we're going to finish up David. Now, why do we spend all this time on David? Why do we spend this time on? Because the Bible has more to say about David than any other human being in the Bible. There are more quotes by David. There are more quotes about David. The New Testament references David 57 different times. The Bible gives more uh, length and more verses and more references to David than any other human being that we have in Scripture. So it stands to reason, if the Bible has that much to say about David, that there's some things that we ought to understand. If this was an example in his best days, not in his bad days, of course, in his best times of a man after God on heart, what does that look like? Okay, so as we look at the life of David, it's important we remember that. Of course, you know the story. The people, the nation of Israel want a king. 
Uh, God is asking them to be patient and to trust him. They, he finally says, okay, I'll give you a king. They take Saul. Uh, Saul starts off well and then crashes and burns, lives poorly. He becomes jealous of David because he sees the power and the anointing him on David, wants to kill him. David makes a covenant relationship with his son, the would-be king, Jonathan, uh, even though Saul's trying to kill him, and they make a covenant agreement with one another. And um, and so you know the story. Jonathan and Saul ended up being killed, and then we pick up here. David is king, and David's going to demonstrate that very positive side of his spirit, that very positive side of the spirit and the power of God. We're going to see that in David in this chapter, in Second Samuel chapter 9. So as we look at that, we'll, we'll understand that in just a moment. But you know what? As we look at this chapter, it is a picture of what some scholars would say, some Hebrew scholars would say, is the most descriptive word of God that you could find. Now, I want us to do an exercise here for just a moment, if you would. I want you to think of, and matter of fact, if you don't mind, just write down your bulletin. I know you were raised as a child, not writing your bulletin. Uh, but if you got a pen, I want you to just write one word. I'm, we're not taking this up. One word that describes you. What is one word that describes you? And if you notice your spouse is not doing it, uh, then you write a word and give it to them, okay? I'd say, this is the word that describes you, buddy. All right? You don't listen. That's what it is. Okay, no. One word, one word that describes you. Just, just write it down. If you were going to describe yourself, if your wife, your husband, or somebody at work, they'd say, this is the word that I'd use to identify this person. This is the word I would choose. What is that word that you would pick? What is that word that others would use to describe you? All right? And you can ask your spouse, because I know something like some, I don't know, I don't know. And if they say something like TV, ask them, no, I want a characteristic, okay? Football. All right. You got that word. Okay. But let me give you the one word in the Old Testament writings that the prophets, kind of the word of choice that they used to describe God. And we looked at it in Lamentations chapter 3 a while ago. And you see it throughout the Bible. There's also a New Testament equivalent. But we're in the Old Testament today. And here's the word. Hesed. Hesed. And it's a word that, unfortunately, in our English language, we don't have one word that adequately describes it. So we kind of have to get a collage of words. We kind of have to have a rainbow effect of words to understand what that word means. The word that we most uh, that we see a lot of times is steadfast, steadfast love. We might even see covenant love, loyalty, compassion, kindness. All these words make up our understanding of the word of Hesed, which best describes the character of God, the Hesed love of God. This is the kind of commitment that David and Jonathan made with one another. They made a covenant. Covenant love. Loyal love. The best picture that I could give to describe it to you today would be this. When we, uh, when I do weddings, and you know, and I used to be a singles minister, so I kind of did weddings for a living, like a ridiculous amount of weddings. Now, now uh, thankfully, I'm at another church, and we don't do them quite as often. I'll do about eight or nine a year, but I'm not doing eight or nine a month right now. So, um, not that weddings are bad, by the way. I don't know why I just even said all that. <laughs> Nevertheless, weddings are good. Marriage is good. That's what Ron said. All right. Don't quote me differently. But I would read this. I would often in weddings, and most of you probably had something of this nature, a covenant or a commitment that you stated in your way for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. See, that's a picture 
are the best we can do today of describing covenant love. See, it, it doesn't really matter, quite frankly, if everything is going well for me. If you will do what you're supposed to do, then this thing will work. If you don't, this is just not going to work. Matter of fact, we do what some say today. We, we've brought a consumer mentality not only into the church but into the into marriage and into family. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible talks about a covenant relationship in marriage, a covenant relationship in our relationships. And we have this new phenomenon of the last hundred years. In the secular world, in the business world, we have a consumer mindset, which is fine. I mean, it's what makes our economy go. We go and we find a car and we find a place that we're buying a car. And we're happy with them as long as they give us good service, give us good price. But as soon as that service is not just right, as soon as the cost is not exactly what we want, we go to another dealer, don't we? Same thing with our groceries, same thing with our clothes, and that's fine. That's good. It, it makes, you know, kind of makes our world a little better. You know what I mean? That competition is kind of good for our economy and it's good for us. But we are looking for service. We're looking for price. We want our, we want our benefits. We want our needs to be met and we want it to be good for us. We want the very best for, for less. Okay? We even have, you know, advertisements like that. And that's all well and good in business and it should be that way. But when we bring that into our relationships, we bring that disposable mentality. Well, that's good as long as you do what I want. As long as it's not too high of a cost. As long as I enjoy it. As long as there's not something better, then we'll make this work. But you know what? There's a better deal out there. <laughs> I'm probably going to check it out. We do that in marriage. We do that sometimes in our friendships, don't we? And they become disposable. And that's the antithesis of what Hesed love is. The Hesed commitment that God has made us, it has nothing to do with how good we are, if God can get a better deal, or if something else comes along better. I mean, we live in a society and a culture where we don't want to make a commitment. And we see it in the church. And I don't want to, no, I don't want to make a commitment right now because, you know, something better might come along. Something might come up. You never know. Kid might get sick. I might get dumb. I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I'd just be better with no commitments in my life right now. Can I tell you, that is why, for that reason right there, that's the reason that there are certain things in life that should be well beyond our feelings and our emotions and our situations. That's why there are what I call covenant relationships or covenant vows. Let me give you four I've made. And I think they're so important that they have to be beyond what I feel and what I think and what outside cultural influences say. They are so important that God ordained them, and that's the way that they should be. They should not be influenced by our consumer mentality. Let me give you four in my life. And you may have more covenant commitments that you've made, but here are four in my life. Number one was my salvation. Once I committed my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, there was a covenant commitment that he made to me and I made to him that he would be my God and I would be his child. I would be his follower. And I was baptized. We have a baptistry right here. We baptized some people week four last. We'll be doing it again in a couple of weeks. We baptize people regularly here at our church who've made a covenant commitment. They say, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me, and I want you to be my God. I am transferring my trust from anything I could do, from any acts of goodness, 
for any methods that I could come up with, any intellectual ways that I think this could always work out. And I'm going to trust you and you along and I commit my life to you. So it doesn't matter what I hear, what I feel, what I see. I'm going back to this covenant commitment. Same thing was true when I got married. I made a covenant commitment to my wife. As a matter of fact, it's personified or pictured, uh, demonstrated by a ring. I wear this wedding ring. It's a picture of a covenant I made. So when I have these feelings like I'm not being treated right, I'm not being respected, and she's not being nice to me, I come back to the covenant. I don't think, I wonder if I could get a better deal. I wonder if I could send her in, trade her on another model, see if I can get somebody to fix this. You know what I mean? That's the consumer mentality. I think, okay, I'm in this. I love her, and we're going to work through this. And this may not be easy, and the real truth of it is, if I look in the mirror, I can probably find a whole lot more going on right here uh, that she ought to be disturbed about. So that's that's the real truth, okay? So it's not going to be up to my feelings and, and uh, how things are going that day. It's more important than that. So it's the covenant. Same thing's true when I got called into ministry. I made a covenant commitment to God to serve him as a minister of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean one day that somebody can't fire me, y'all can't kick me out or put me on the curb, okay? But you know what? My love and my commitment to the church will be the same whether I get paid or not. Because God has called me and put me in it. And, and that's the reason, can I tell you this? That's the reason that I can do what I do and I love it. I really do. I love it. And there's some things I put up. I have friends all the time that say, I couldn't do it. You, I would not put up with that. I would not put up with that. That's because you're not called to do it. That's why that's the bottom line. I am. You're not. And I don't necessarily like it all the time, but I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And I love it. I'm embraced it. And this is what I'm going to do until somebody doesn't let me do it anymore. Okay. That's the way it is. Number four, when I made a covenant commitment to rate, as a matter of fact, one of them on this stage, uh, a covenant commitment to raise my children in the faith. We dedicated them and I said, I'm going to commit to raise my children in the faith, to love them, to care for them uh, until they leave this earth or I leave this earth. Regardless, I am going to uh, unconditionally love them. So that's that's a picture of, of covenant love. That's a picture of what God has done for us. And that's going to be a picture that we're going to see here in Second Samuel chapter 9. Okay, so Hesed love, loving kindness, faithfulness. That's what we're talking about this morning, how we can experience the Hesed love of God as we come to the table of the king. As we come today, as we talked about, as we come at the end of the service to have a time of communion to this table, we'll come to a table and we're all in different places. Some of us are Democrats. And some of us are Republicans. It's OK. We come to this table and we receive from the table. Uh, some are of different uh, ethnic backgrounds. Some are of different socioeconomic groups. Some are from different countries. Uh, some of you went to Texas A&M. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you can you come to the table, and we are all united by Christ. And it's a beautiful picture because of the Hesed love of God. Read with me in Second Samuel chapter nine, beginning with the first verse, and we see the Hesed love of God used here. Three different times. David asked, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Remember, we said Jonathan was David's best friend. He was killed in battle. And now David has fully taken over as king over all the tribes. And he is in his zenith. 
He has defeated his enemies. He's in good shape. And what typically would happen at this time is you would find out whoever was left in the kingdom before, in the household before, and quite frankly, they would be executed. They would either leave and go to a far country where you couldn't get to them, or they would be killed. That was just typically how it works. I mean, even today in Washington, what happens? Democrat comes in, all Republicans get out of here. Uh, Republicans can come in, all you Democrats get out of the house. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's the way they do it. You have your little cabinet, you, you bring your folks in. Uh, it was that way, except uh, a lot more extreme. How about we kill you, okay, so that no one has any right to the throne. And so that's what typically would happen. That's what uh, Mephibosheth would expect to happen. That's what happened historically before, after, and even during this time in other other cultures. And so here we are. And David says, is there anybody who would be my competition for the throne? Whom I, who would be my enemy? It's probably a good way for us to understand. Is there any enemy that I can show compassion to, that I can show hesed to? Is there anyone that I can do this for Jonathan's sake? And now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. You're probably thinking, man, I should have named my son that. And they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And your servant, he, he replied. And the king asked, is there no one left of the house of Saul whom I can show God's hesed? Who I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in both feet. Yet, there's somebody, but he's crippled. It, it's interesting that Ziba doesn't even mention his name. In that culture, in that day, most believed that if you were crippled or blind, or you had some kind of uh, physical deformity, there was God's judgment upon you or your family because of some sin or some deed you had committed. So it was almost like they're cursed. And so he is not of consequence. Matter of fact, there's a good chance that he wouldn't have been even considered to be king because he was lame, because he could not walk. And the Bible tells us earlier uh, in Second Samuel that what had happened when Saul and Jonathan were both killed at Mount Jeboa during the battle and the Philistines were invading that a nurse grabbed Mephibosheth and took off running and dro apparently dropped him, crushing both of his ankles. Not a good time for orthopedic surgery in that time, and so there's nothing to be done. So he's never able to really walk again. He may have some form of crutches or something of that nature. We don't know exactly how he moved around, but we know that he couldn't walk. And so what does he do? He's been, he's had his... Legs taken away from him. His father and his grandfather have been killed. So what does he get do? He goes to a desolate place where no one would want to come and no one would find him. He's called Lodabar. We'll see that here in just a second. And so the Bible says, there's a guy with, who's crippled, who's the son of Jonathan. And David said, where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, he's in the house of Makar. I'll tell you the names of the people where he lives with. I'm not going to tell you his name. I mean, why would you care? The son of Emiel in Lodabar. Lodabar is in the Transjordan area, and it is a desolate place. It's basically, a, it means no pastures. Okay? 
So there's nothing growing. There's no life, so to speak. It's a very desolate place. And it's a great place to hide because nobody wants to go to Low Bar. Nobody goes there on spring break. It's just not the place to go. All right. So here he is. And the Bible says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the first time we hear his name, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. Mephibosheth knows that this is probably not good, but he thinks maybe in the back of his mind I have a chance because I'm lame, I'm no threat here, and he bows down, shows him great respect. Probably does not look him in the eye, most certainly would not look him in the eye. And then David does something amazing that in our culture we don't get quite as we don't have quite as great understanding of, but here's what David does, first of all. David does this. David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He says his name. When someone said your name in that culture, and it's still true today to a great degree, but particularly in this culture, particularly someone of honor or someone of royalty, said your name, that was a sign of respect. When they called you by a name, that they recognized you as a person. They recognized you as an individual. They recognized you as someone of, of worth. And so he says, Mephibosheth. I mean, even the servant, Ziba, has been saying, the cripple kid. I mean, that's what he's been calling him. That's what people have said. That's the name that he's kind of taken on. No one really recognizes him. And David, the king, looks at the man who's been in Lodabar in the desert, the kid who's not been able to walk since he's five years old, who thinks he's going to die, who has no hope, and he calls him by name. There's a beautiful typology that we see here that really, if you think for just a moment, we can place ourselves in the position of Mephibosheth. We are crippled in our sin. We are far away from God. And the king, whom we can give nothing, whom we could never repay, who we would be surprised recognizes, calls us by name. And the Bible says, your servant, he replied. And then David gives this so-called salvation oracle. The first line that he uses, the first words that he says is, do not be afraid. Words that Jesus used frequently with the disciples, with people he would encounter. The words that Mary was given by the angel and Joseph was given by the angel. Do not be afraid. It means this. It means I'm, I'm not about to harm you. This is not a time in which you should fear. I, there is not a negative consequence about to come upon you. Do not be afraid. And David said to him, for I will surely show you hesed. I will show you covenant love. I will show you compassion. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because of the father. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I'm going to give you back all the land that your grandfather had, all his servants, all those who worked for him. And you're going to get the economic benefit from that. There's a lot of it because he had 15 sons and 20 servants. So, I mean, there's, you know, there, just at that point right there, there's 35 people working for you now. You've been in Lodabar. 
You've been living in fear. And now you're going to be given uh, a large sum of land with servants to work. And on top of that, you're going to come to my table. You're going to eat at the table of the king. There's a place being made for you. You're going to come and eat here as one of my sons. This must have been overwhelming from Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth bows down and says, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, that term dog is used throughout Scripture. You know, we have this affectionate term for dogs today. We think, oh, a cute little puppy. That's not the way they felt about dogs. They were usually scavengers uh, in this particular culture and, and in this time. And so they were usually wild. And it was a derogatory term. And so we even see it being used in First and Second Samuel to reference certain individuals of which uh, they highly disrespected. Uh, and we see it being used here as a term of severe self-deprecation. It's, it's about as low as I could think and just say, I, I'm a, and not only that, I'm a dead dog. I mean, Mephibosheth certainly understands the scenario. He certainly sees the significance of it. And he says, why would you want to bless me like that? I, some, I mean, the world would say we're enemies. I would say there's nothing of me that you should desire. And both of those things would be true. But this is the best of David. This is the part of David that allows the Scripture to refer to him as a man after God's own heart. This is the part of David that he honors a covenant commitment that no one is expecting. No one's thinking, uh, David, remember that covenant commitment you made when you were a teenager with Jonathan and you promised to, you know, to not harm him and bless him and to basically bless his house. Nobody's bringing that up. Nobody's saying, you know, here's an opportunity. There's, he, there's a boy out there and, you know, he's, he's way out there in the desert, long way away. Maybe you ought to bring him in. Nobody's saying that. Nobody expects that. Mephibosheth doesn't expect that. Nobody thinks that. I mean, he is dead in his sin, so to speak, in his situation. And the king says, go and get him and bring him to me. That's what he says, that's what he, and that's what he does because of the hessed nature of God, the hessed nature of the covenant he made with Jonathan. And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson of your, ma of your master will eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord, the king, commands the servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. The writer sticks that last little phrase in there. He always ate at the king's table. He was crippled in both feet. Do you see the typology there? Do you see the picture that here's someone who didn't think he was worthy of the king? Here's someone who was lost and, so to speak, and crippled 
by his condition. Here's someone that thought that they had no hope and they had no future. And there was nothing they could do to manipulate the circumstances to change that. There's someone who had given up and he hears a summon to come to the king. And he responds and he comes before the king and he recognizes his condition and the authority and the royalty of the king. And all he can do is bow down and say, why would you want me? And the king says, not because of what you've done, but because of the Hesed commitment with the father. You receive the blessing. Because of the son of the king, Saul, and the covenant commitment I made with him, everything is taken care of. And you get to come to the table. You're fully accepted. You're fully forgiven. I'm not worried. I don't live in fear. I'm not worried about what people say or what what will occur. I'm not worried about what you could give or what you could do or how you could make yourself adequate. Just come to the table. It's a gift of grace that's being given to you. You know, there's three things to always understand about covenant love or about hesed. Number one, when we make those vows, like I told you about earlier in my life, here's one thing you can always count on. It will cost you. It always has a high cost. When you make a covenant commitment, when you make a commitment, when you made a commitment to Jesus Christ, there was a cost involved. You gave him your life and control of your life. All that you own, all that you have is all his now. And you are simply a steward. You are a servant. You are the ziba now. That's who you are. There's a cost. When I got married, it's wonderful. It's a cost. There are bills I pay every month. There's a cost. There are things that I have to do. There's a cost. There are things that I have to clean that I never even dreamed needed to be cleaned. There's a cost. Okay? Sometimes, there are a lot of times I don't get to do what I want to do, get to eat what I want to eat, get to go where I want to go. There's a cost. But there, but it's worth it. I'm thankful for it. When I decided to have children, it's great, but there is a cost. Let me tell you, there's a cost. There's, and it continues because there are a lot of hidden costs that they don't tell you about right there, by the way. There are costs. Being a pastor of church, there's, there's a cost. There's, there's a cost. I don't get invited to some parties. Big deal. There are conversations that don't go well for me. There are a lot of things that I don't do or I don't get to do or I don't I can't do. But you know, can I tell you this? There's even greater blessing. You see each one of those? And can I tell you, I don't get to experience the blessing if I don't pay the cost. You will not have a good marriage if you don't pay the cost. If it doesn't cost you. I can tell you this. We don't get any promises about our children, but here's what I can promise you. If it doesn't cost you to raise your children... You're going to be in trouble, all right? If it's going really easy, it didn't cost you anything, you don't know where they are, you're going to pay. <laughs> we pay anyway, but you're really going to pay. There's a cost. When I decided to follow Christ, there was a cost. He asked for my life. And the Bible goes as far as to, to use the metaphor, what king does not first consider the cost before he goes into battle? There's a cost to being a disciple. Of Christ. 
There's a cost in the church. You know, we live in a society, again, where it's consumer mentality. And people are, I don't really want to join there. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody this way. You know, I, actually, I'm going to another place because nobody knows who I am. There's no accountability. I just can be completely anonymous. I'm sure that'll be transformational for you there. And I'm all for big places. I'm not against big places. I came out of a big place. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when we take that mentality and say, no commitment, no commitment. Yeah, it's easy, but there's no blessing. And we'll go, they're not doing it for me. You know, I just don't really feel anything. Because there's no cost involved. There's no commitment. I mean, when I decided to follow Christ, the Bible says this. This is the seven different times Jesus made this quote. More than any other quote he made in the Gospels, this is what he said. He who would seek to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find life. That's called total commitment. So if we continue to bring our consumer mentality into our faith, into our marriages, into our parenting, and into our church life, we will not experience the blessing that God intends for us to mean. Because there's a cost. But when we pay that cost, there's a blessing. There's a great blessing when I'm able to love my wife like I'm supposed to love her. There's a great blessing of having children that cost a lot. But I love them and I'm so thankful for that. There's a great blessing that I get to do what I do for a living. And I'm excited about it. The calling that God is going to, even though there's a cost. There's a great blessing of salvation. Of eternal salvation, of eternal grace, of experiencing the Hessian love of God forever. And the remarkable thing about him is he paid the cost. All I have to do is be faithful somewhat. So, here's what I want you to think about. Number one, think about your covenants this morning. What vows have you made? What covenant vows have you made? Are they costing you? Do you need to recommit? Do you need to make some commitments? Because there are some things that are so important that they need to be beyond the realm of feelings and moods. That's why marriage is a covenant. Because God didn't want us working like, I don't feel like it today. That's why God asked us to commit our children to faith. And it's a covenant to love them unconditionally. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what mood you're in. The same is true of your faith and of your commitment to the church. Those weren't supposed to be. Yeah, I don't feel like it now. Some things are so important, we call them covenants. We take vows, and God looks at them in that manner. And that's why we have them. And if they're not important, then you won't make a commitment. Matter of fact, I didn't read this last service. You guys need it, though. Um Dangers of cohabitation. I thought this was interesting. And by the way, this is from the Oxford Review. This is not a Christian study. The Oxford Review that came out, and it says this on cohabitation. Relationships are unstable in cohabitation. One-sixth of the cohabiting couples stay together only three years. One, only one in ten survives five years or more. You know why? Because I don't want to make a commitment. I want to see how I feel. I want to see if a better deal comes along. If that's the truth, that's reason in five years only 10% of them make it. And again, I'm not reading some James Dobson statistic, for those of you who get all 
Well, you can manipulate however you want. This is the Oxford Review, okay? This is about as non-Christian as you would ever want to find, okay? Cohabitating women often end up with the responsibility of marriage, particularly when it comes to caring for children. Seventy percent of them are responsible financially for their children. Cohabitation brings greater risk of sexually transmitted disease because cohabiting, cohabitating men are four times more likely to be unfaithful. Poverty rates are higher among cohabitors. Those who share a home but never marry have 78% less wealth than those who marry. Those who, number five, those who suffer most in cohabitation are children. The poverty rate amongst children of cohabitating couples is five times greater than the rate of those of married couples. Children aged 12 to 17 with cohabitating parents are six times more likely to exhibit emotional and behavioral problems and 122% more likely to be expelled from school. And sometimes we think, God just has all these rules. Golly, why does he make you do that? That marriage is just a piece of paper. You know why? Because God loves you. Because of the Hesed love of God. Because God knows when there's no commitment, there's no real love. That's just the hard fact. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit that. But even the secular psychologists and sociologists will bear that out. So here's my question to you. What covenants have you made? Are you being faithful with them? And what covenants do you need to make? This morning, if there's a commitment you need to make, if you need to make a commitment to Christ, I want to invite you to come and receive. We have some people out there who would love to talk to you about it and walk you through that process. If you need to recommit in one of those areas that I talked to you about this morning, then I want to invite you to do that. I want you to prepare your heart at this time to come to the table of the Lord. If there's sin you need to confess, or if there are covenant commitments that you need to recommit to God, whether it be in your marriage, to your children, to the church, or to the Father, whatever it be, I invite you to do that at this time. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. As we come to your table, we say thank you. We thank you for the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Your mercies that never come to an end. For they are new for every day. And so, Lord, we recognize that as we come to your table as we receive from your table, as we say thank you this day, and we give you praise and we give you honor. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen.